Let's take our Bibles. We're going to go to the book of John this morning. The book of John. In the very first chapter, we're going to start there. But, you know, in, when you're going through the early history of the church, you'll find that the disciples could preach on the life of Christ, and they could get away with it. And they could preach on the crucifixion and the, the death of Christ because it was obviously not done in a corner. They could get away with that. But when they preached that Jesus Christ came back from the dead, they ran into some problems because that's, that's where the real rub is. I mean, that, that's it. That's the whole shooting match right there. Uh, it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that separates Christianity from every other world religion. Every world religion says, uh, our teachers say that you ought to live a good life. And they teach you how to do what they think is, a, is to live a good life. We do the same thing as Christians. Uh, every world religion says you ought to be good to your neighbor. So do we. Every religion in the world says that there will be some kind of eventual universal justice that balances out the scales. Something is going to eventually happen to where finally right is vindicated and wrong is punished. Well, we believe the same thing. But when we stand and say our leader died and rose from the dead, therefore he is superior, people have a problem with that. And it's understandable, because that's a mighty big claim to make. Now, I'm not here to tell you that I have any other proof than what God has always given us, that is the Word of God. Some people would say, well, can't we all just get along? I mean, all these religions say basically the same thing. Well, if 98% of the people are following some dead guy, that can't beat death. And then the other people are following someone who died and came back from the dead. That's going to really be a parting of the ways. That's really tough. You see, preaching about the resurrection, the resurrection of Christ is indeed a fork in the road. And it has been from the beginning. It has been for people who were alive when Jesus was on the earth. In fact, when you get towards the end of the book of Acts, towards the end of what God tells us about the church age there, um, Paul, beginning in the early stages of the church, he's talking to Festus, a king, and he said this to him. He said, why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? You see, it is an incredible thing. And in a true sense of the word, of the definition of incredible, Uh, Something that is not credible, difficult to believe, right? Incredible. Why? He said, why should you think it's something incredible that God should raise the dead? And he continued to go on. He talked to Festus, this king, and he told him about how Christ had suffered and how he rose from the dead. You know what Festus's response was? He said this. Festus said with a loud voice, Thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad. He thought he was a kook because he believed and preached the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why? Because everybody knows life from the dead is impossible. 
I mean, everybody says that, except for the most respected scientists of our day. They believe that life came from non-life, right? Life just spontaneously, what happened? Nothing exploded and produced everything. Isn't that what the Big Bang is all about? I mean, you say, well, there was a tiny speck of something. All right, so a tiny speck of something exploded, and now we're all here. Takes a lot of faith, doesn't it? In 2022, there was an engineer at Google, Blake Lemoyne, who was fired. He was uh, fired for, there's a little bit of controversy why he was fired. Fired for what he said or the fact that he brought out confidential information. What he said was that Lambda, this language, uh, learning artificial intelligence software that they developed, as we we know it as AI, chat, GPT, and so forth. He claimed that their version of that, which was called Lambda, had gained sentience. And he posted his transcript, his conversation with this robot, and said, this robot is alive. It is thinking for itself. It is as real as you and I. And he got fired. Now, the controversy is, did he get fired for saying it was alive or for letting people know that it was alive? Either way, it doesn't matter. Because people do believe that life can come back from the dead. But you don't, you don't have to, there's no accountability to a robot, right? Listen to this. A, a lady named Regina Rini, she's a professor at York University, she defended him, she defended Blake Lemoyne. Because people are saying, how in the world, Blake, what are you talking about? Even though every movie today, you know, everybody's trying out AI, everybody's doing it, it's in pop culture everywhere, but it's, you know, how could you possibly say the unsayable thing? And so this lady came to his defense, this is what she said. She said, I I don't think he's right, but I think it's short-sighted to ridicule him. And this is what she said. Unless you want to insist human consciousness resides in an immaterial soul, you ought to concede that it is possible for matter to give life to mind. Did you hear what she said? The only alternative to believing that this couldn't happen is to believe that there is a spirit world. Unless you want to open the door and say that an immaterial world is actually possible, it's best for us to stay with this idea that somehow the machine came to life. I thought that was a pretty interesting admission. And she says, and it will happen, this idea of matter giving life to mind. She said, it will happen faster the second time, driven by deliberate deliberate design, not natural chance. There's a lot there. Modern science has proved, people say. Well, be careful with that. You know, modern science is what bled George Washington to death. The father of our country died Because the best science said you should bleed patients who are sick. Well, we're more advanced now. We're we're, we're much further ahead. Well, yeah, but everybody still dies. So maybe we're not as far ahead as we think. You ever think about the fact that the greatest scientific mind in history, uh, if you're going to call your kid a genius and you wanted to pick a name, what name would you use? Most people would say Einstein. That's the guy who gave you the atom bomb, and, and the theory of relativity. Now, I'm not a physicist. 
I, I don't know all that is encompassing with that, but best of my knowledge, it means you don't know where you are and you don't know where you're going, so you can't know where you are right now. Theory of relativity. You've got to have something against which to measure where you are. And if you don't know where that is, then what are we doing? Theory of relativity. By the way, that's the guy who doesn't know where he is, where he's going, or where he came from, and he has a bomb. That's human nature, isn't it? That's human nature. Look at, look at John chapter 1, if you would. I want you to see what God said about the beginning. God said, in the beginning was the word, not the picture, not the feeling, not the hunch, the word. What separates you from animals? The most easily definable difference is words. Very easy. You can say a word and it can put a thought in someone else's mind. It's powerful. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. What is life? Well, life is the quality that distinguishes a vital, functional being from a dead body. That's life. It's the difference between me and this right here. This used to be alive, but it's no longer alive. I'm still alive, just barely. You're alive. The thing you're sitting on is not alive. He said, in him was life. You see, God is the author of life. Life was his idea. Where did we come from? We came from God. God is the author. Why? Because he was a living being and he loved to create. His creation also was living. But I want you to see, if you take your Bibles and continue on in the book of John, let's go over to chapter 10. So God gives life, and he gave life to all the plants, all the animals, and the people. But God wants more for you. John chapter 10, look at verse 10. The thief cometh not, but for to steal, and to kill, and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. And he gives us a clue. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. So in him was life. And he wants you to have life. And how is he going to give you life? He's not just talking about physical life. We all have physical life here. We all are alive, which, by the way, is a miracle. I always like to say to people when they talk about having a child, I say, that's a miracle. Hey, I know it's a miracle when we had a child. Why? I have not the first clue how to build a foot. Foot. It's got lots of bones in it. I have no idea how the thing's put together. I couldn't reproduce that thing if I had to. What's crazy is we think they're our children. <laughs> Somehow we made them. We had, nothing, we had barely anything to do with it. 
God made it enjoyable so we could, we could pretend that we had something to do with it. We got nothing to do with making human life. Where did human life come from? It came from God. God's the one that, by the way, is something very important. We got to value human life. Why? Because it came from God. But God said physical life is not enough. I am come that they might have life. Why? Because the original two people lost something. They had physical life, but they lost spiritual life. All right, they had an interaction with, through their five senses with the world around them, but they did not have a connection with the God who created them. Do you have a relationship with the God who created you? You say, well, I don't believe that there's a God who created me. Well, who did, who did create you? Well, I don't believe we were created. Well, then you believe you made yourself. How are you doing with your own life? Let me ask you this. If you were the beginning of the process, how much benefit have you contributed to mankind? How have you helped push the race of man forward? You, you think people that were not as evolved as we are were somehow better at helping? Why are we more concerned, consumed? Times article recently said, uh, people are consumed more and more with their free time. They value their autonomy. They don't like getting together in community. They value their kids less than they used to. And they value their time off and their entertainment much more. Why? We're selfish. You mean to tell me we're at the long end of evolution somehow? We're not evolving. We're devolving. People are getting nastier. How do I know that? Somebody stole my parking space. I was there first. He said, I'm come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. You see, Jesus came because God intends for you to have eternal life. Now take your Bibles and go to John chapter 19. We're going to skip through this. I'm, I'm going to take it for granted. And what a blessing to live in a country where most people have heard the story of Jesus Christ. So Jesus lived on this earth. He came that we might have life. And he lived on this earth for 33 years. But he ran into some trouble with self-righteous people who did not like to consider him to be the son of God or to be in charge in any way. We will not have this man to rule over us. And so now we find him in John chapter 19, verse 17. John 19, 17. And he, bearing his cross went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him. Now, now, if you remember, this hymn is the same hymn that created everything. In him was life. And now they're going to nail his hands and his feet to a method of execution that was perfected first introduced by the Persians and perfected all along the way to inflict as much possible injury and, and pain as could be. It was not designed to kill someone. It was designed to lengthen their death. I mean, you kill somebody, just stab them in the heart, cut their head off, whatever. No, they, they wanted to stretch this out as much as possible to inflict as much torture. Why? Because this person really needs to know that what they did is really bad and they need to hurt for a long time. The Romans were different than us as, as American citizens. 
They had no problems. They had no problem hurting someone for a long time. And that's what they're doing here. They crucified him. Look at chapter 30. I'm sorry, 19, verse 30. Excuse me just for a moment. When Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. That's his spirit. He gave up his existence as a human. He gave it up. But I ask you this question. How can the author of life die? How can the one who raised the dead die? Life was his idea. This is what Charles Wesley, the songwriter, had in mind when he said, "'Tis mystery all, the immortal dies." How can someone who is immortal die? If you're immortal, you can't die. That's what the word means. Only mortals die. Here's the author of life who dies. And notice that he chose to die. You see, he's not just some kind of a rabble rouser, political miscreant. He came on purpose. He said, I am come that you might have life. And how are you going to give us life? Well, I'm a good shepherd. So in order for you to have life, I'm going to lay my life down. You're not doing it to me. I'm doing it for you. That's what Jesus did. Well, 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 Lazarus, Lazarus was dead and and Lazarus, you know, he, Lazarus was resurrected. He came out. Yeah, yeah. But remember, Jesus was alive when he raised Lazarus. How can, how can the dead raise the dead? So when Jesus gives up his life, when he is crucified and eventually all of his blood flows out of his body and he doesn't die because of that, he he intentionally on purpose gives up his life. Well, why is, how, what, what are you talking about? What's going on? You see, it's not just that Jesus traded places with us. I mean, that's what it is, but it goes a lot deeper than that. It's actually darker than that. Because the Bible tells us in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Well, okay, everybody knows that. Everybody sinned. Even you, who may think, well, I haven't sinned like you, there's things that you know are wrong that you have done. That's a sin. So if you were to be honest with yourself, and I'm going to be honest with myself, all have sinned. And come short of the glory of God. Hey, I've come short of the glory of me, let alone the glory of God. Wherefore, as by one man, sin entered into the world, and guess what followed? Death by sin. Death came in because of sin. The only reason why there is death is because of sin. You ever get this feeling like you're still 18 years old and you don't know how you got out of shape? You ever had that? Some of you are like, I wish I was 18 years old. I'm not even 15 yet. Listen, there there comes a point in your life where you realize that things are not necessarily getting better. It's just time to hold on, preserve, conserve, right? Don't move. (laughs) Keep eating sugar and keep eating junk food for sure, but don't, you know. 
Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For the wages of sin is death. So here's the question. Jesus gave up the ghost. He died. He was the author of life. In him was life. Now he gave up his life. He's dead. But doesn't that bring up a question for you? If death only comes because of sin, then why is this supposedly great Jesus dead on the cross? Well, we know this. We know this. here's, Here's the answer. God has always loved the sinner, but he could not allow the sinner to violate his law. You see, any kind of love that violates the law is lawlessness. You say, well, I really love this person, and so I'm willing to go outside the law for them. No, no, you love yourself. If God were to go outside of the law and violate it because he loved mankind, he would become the biggest criminal in the universe. Why? Because God's the one that set the whole thing up. And God says, well, I'm just going to violate the law. I said that if the soul that sinneth, it shall die, but I really love man, so I'm just going to let this one slide. By the way, other religions deal with that by saying this. How could God forgive sin? God just says, you're forgiven. Well, that sounds great, except what about the payment for the sin? Hey, listen, if, if, if every time you commit a crime, the judge just says, well, we're going to be lenient on you. What happens to justice? It disappears. Now, you can thank God for mercy, but if the judge gives mercy to every single person, justice would soon begin to fade and deteriorate. So God could not, God could not look the other way and say, even though mankind has committed sin, even though they violated my law, I'm just going to say, hey, listen, I'm in charge of it all, so I'm just going to let it slide. God's love to man could be expressed only through a righteousness, a resume of right doing, a righteousness which could condemn sin and still save the sinner. He had to say, you're guilty, but he also wanted to say, but I forgive you. Now, you say, well, I mean, that's easy. We run to the end. We've got to slow down and actually read the book. God was torn in two. He had to one, he had, he had to judge sin. Why? Because of everything. Look, you think, you think that it's not sin because you just decided that it's not? Are you married? If you're married, you know you can't just decide what's right and wrong for yourself. If you have kids, you can't just decide, well, today we do this and tomorrow we don't do that. I mean, you have to be consistent. Otherwise, it'll be just total anarchy and chaos. God had to be consistent. When he told Adam and Eve, don't touch the fruit, and they did, now we got a problem. It was one stupid little thing. The whole world had to be plunged into chaos because of one thing. See, we forget how holy God is and how much he really, really meant what he said. If you don't like the Bible, I would, I would guess you don't like Anyone telling you what to do? You don't like the concept that someone could ever say to you, no. So you want to say, 
Well, I know what he said, but there's all kinds of different religions. There's all kinds of different ways to look at it. Ultimately, what you mean is I get to decide for myself what's right and wrong. But you're not even consistent in that. You do whatever you want, whatever you feel like. You've hurt people and you say, well, they've hurt people too. It's like saying, well, you smashed my window. Well, well, other people have smashed windows. Yeah, but what, what, what about God? Does anybody ever care about him? What happened to him? He said, thou shalt not, and we shout. He said, don't do it, and we did it. So God said, I'm not going to let it slide and pretend like it didn't happen. I'm going to punish you. But I also love you. See, God is so much more serious about us doing what he says than we can ever imagine. He he is so much holier than we can understand. But he also is much more compassionate than we can understand. And he's got both of those forces in him. God is just gigantic. He is so much more powerful. And so what did he do? His love had to have a righteous channel. He had to find a way to love and still follow the rule of whatever, whenever a person sins, they have to pay for that sin. He had to follow the rule that uh, God is love. He loves mankind. But then he also had to follow the rule, the soul that sinneth it shall die. So how did he do it? Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to die for you. The cross of Christ was the answer to how we could get his life, even though we didn't deserve it. Even though he gave us life and we turned away from him, now he says, I am going to pay for you so that you can have eternal life, even though you don't deserve it. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us. I want you to look in John chapter 10. Look at verse number 17. We're coming back there to the end of the, of the book in a moment. But look at John 10, verse 17. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, And that's what he did. He took his power and said, I am going to die. That's completely antithetical. That's the complete opposite of how we all think. We think whatever I'm going to do with my life, it's going to be towards the goal of living longer and happier and more fulfilled. Whatever I do with my life, it's going to be better. I'm going to live more life. I'm going to know I'm alive. It's going to be awesome. Jesus said, I have power. And my power is such that I am going to use that power to lay my life down. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Now, we know that because of our military men and women who serve with great sacrifice and great honor. And we thank them for that. That's the ult- we call it the ultimate sacrifice. Abraham Lincoln called it their last full measure of devotion. But you know, they did that for their countrymen. Jesus laid his life down, not only for his friends, 
but also for his enemies. He lays his life down. But I want you to see here, this is before he was ever arrested, before he ever went to trial. He said, I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. The author of life died. But he didn't stay dead. Look back at John chapter 20. John chapter 20. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early. What's the first day of the week? Sunday. And the Jewish day started at 6 p.m. in the evening. So the first day of the week, it was dark. What we would call Saturday evening around 6 o'clock. Somewhere between 6 o'clock and sunrise. Still dark. She came unto the sepulcher. And seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and the other disciple, whom Jesus loved, and saith unto him, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher. You see, she's, she's heard what Jesus said, but she's still thinking like we all think. It's all about mankind, and people just get what they want, and they do what they want, and we're all just victims. We're all just at their mercy. She said, this hap- I knew it was going to happen. You get excited about something, and then politicians rush in, the military comes in, people just do whatever they want. We don't really have any power. That's what, she, what she's thinking. That they came, and they took the body away. All I wanted to do was just to come to the body and say, thank you. Thank you. Some of you go to, to the grave of your loved ones at this, this time and put flowers there and remember them and, and, and thank the Lord for, for their influence in your life. I think that's what Mary was saying. All I wanted to do was just come down and remember those good old days. And they messed that up. He's gone. I can't even anoint him. Look at verse 6. Then cometh Simon Peter, following him, went into the sepulcher, and seeth the linen clothes lie, And the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Simon's going, hmm. I don't think if they stole him out of the the sepulcher here, I don't think they would have taken the time to wrap this napkin together neatly. Verse 8, then went in also that other disciple which came to first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. Believed what? Believed that he was gone? Well, everybody believed he was gone. There's no body there. No, this, this disciple is John, the beloved, the one who wrote this book. And he believed that what Jesus had said before, he actually accomplished. He believed that what Jesus said about laying his life down and then taking up again that he had, he had actually followed through on his word. Look at verse number 11. But Mary stood without at the sepulcher weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher, and seeth two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they said unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? What, what, what kind of a question is that for Mary? Why are you crying? Well, you know... You want to ask me why I'm crying? What are you talking about? 
The only the most important man I'd ever met in my life, the one who has had an impact on me, the one who forgave me, the one who brought me out of the shadows, out of the darkness and the cave, and brought me into civilization again, the one who loved me back to warmth and sunlight, the one who actually cared for me, the one who talked to me. Nobody else would talk to me, but he cared about me. He spoke tenderly to me. He loved me. Very, very few people. In fact, no men have ever been like that with me. He was unusual. He was supernatural. What do you mean, why am I crying? She said, because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. When she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing. Saw Jesus. And knew not that it was Jesus. Here's, there's layers of, of, of people here, understand, layers of understanding in this passage. Because John sees the empty tomb and says, yep, he did it. Peter's going away scratching his head. What is going on? He's still got some things to work out, we find out here. And the Lord has a one-on-one with him later. But, but look at Mary. Mary is looking right at Jesus and doesn't know that it's Jesus. Christian, you ever feel that way? Where is the Lord in all this? He's standing right in front of you. You know, God raised up some people from the dead. He raised up Lazarus. Lazarus did not get up on his own. The the daughter of Jairus uh, did not raise herself up by her own power. The Shunammite woman in the Old Testament, she had a son, and that son came back to life, but he didn't come back to life on his own. In each of those cases, God intervened and God raised that person from the dead. But what's unique about the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that he triumphed over the grave by his own power. He said, I have power to lay my life down and I have power to take it up. Hold your place, if you would, in John. Let's look at Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 3. Romans chapter 1. If you go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Romans chapter 1, look at verse 3. Paul's speaking about the gospel. He said, Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power. Declared to be the Son of God with power by two things. One, according to the spirit of holiness. Yes, he had the Holy Spirit, but his Spirit was holy. He lived a holy life. He lived a sinless life. He was declared to be the Son of God with power by one, he lived a sinless life and yet was killed. And number two, by the resurrection from the dead. You see, the empty tomb is just is 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 much more than just the assurance of our salvation. It is the infallible proof that Jesus is who he said he was. when, When Adam was told, in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And from that day till this, death holds sway over all the children of Adam. My father's Adam, your father's Adam. I'm a sinner, you're a sinner. But Jesus' father was God. And Jesus never committed a sin. And it's one thing to claim holiness... But Jesus proved that he was holy. 
He was put to death for sin, our sin, but he had never committed a sin. And this is the great leverage that gave him the power to get out of the ground. This is why we worship Jesus Christ and no one else. Because he is the only one to come back from the dead by virtue of his sinlessness. He came back from the dead because he was not guilty of the sins that he paid for. It's amazing. The proof of sin is death. But the proof of holiness is resurrection. And there was only one way that Jesus could prove to be the Holy Son of God, and that was that he had to triumph over death. If he was not sinless, when the men put him into the tomb, he would have stayed there. But Jesus said, I'm holy, and I'll prove it. You put me into the, into the grave, three days and three nights later, I'm going to walk out of that grave. And when he walked out of that grave, he proved that, the, that he was everything that he claimed to be. And I want to remind you of something here. This is something that has been attested to by witness after witness after witness. The Bible tells us there were 500 people who saw him alive after he had died. That's a lot of witnesses. What we're talking about is a, is a verifiably historical claim. Jesus Christ is not the first person to be raised from the dead, but he is the first person, the only person to ever rise from the dead by virtue of his own righteousness and to rise from the dead, never to be touched by death again. He is forever alive, not just back from the dead. Boy, that'd be a great trick, but he's forever alive. He said this, he said, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And, by the way, have the keys of death and hell. I have control, power over death and hell. And he used those keys. When did he use the keys? Well, we don't have time to go into that. But the scripture plainly shows that the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. When Jesus went down, he had those keys in hell and he unlocked and took captivity captive and he took all those saints with him up to glory. Jesus Christ rose from the dead by his own power. The author of life died and then came back to life. That's the power. That's why we worship him. But I want you to look at John chapter 20 and verse 24 as we close this morning. John chapter 20. The fact of the resurrection cannot help you. It is a fact, but it can't help you. It says in verse 24, but Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, we have seen the Lord. And he said unto them, except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again, his disciples were within, and Thomas was with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, everybody else was there. Jesus just came to talk to Thomas. And he walks up to Thomas, looks him in the eye, says this, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, 
and reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side and be not faithless, but believing. Now, this is this is not just a spirit that came out of the grave. That would not be a resurrection. Resurrection is the return of life into the very same body that was dead. And now he has that body and then a glorified body. This is truly a resurrection. And he walks up to him and says, be not faithless, but believing. Try me out, Thomas. Try me out. If you're what people might call a doubting Thomas, someone who has a lot of questions and doubts. There's two kinds of skeptics. There's honest skeptics and there's proud skeptics. Honest skeptics say, I don't know, I don't know, I don't, ah, I'm not convinced. But they're honest because when, prevent, when presented with some kind of evidence, some kind of tangible fact that they can put their teeth into, they're at least willing to say, okay, I can believe that. A dishonest skeptic is someone who says, no, 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 because they're really never ever looking for an answer. They just want to be important. They just want to be contrary. They just want to rebel. They just want to do their own thing. They just want to push back at everything anybody says. No, no, there's a way around that. Oh, you know, there's a way around having a mindset that says there's a way around that. Right? You can actually doubt your doubts. You can actually step back from skepticism as somehow the singularity of the universe. It's not. Because skepticism doesn't offer answers. It, it broaches questions. And a question that would never consider an answer is dishonest. If you're going to come to God and say, God, why? Then how about letting God answer for himself? And if you wouldn't do that, you're a hypocrite. If you won't let anybody else be right but you, you know that that's a terrible way to live. You say, it's working for me. Yeah, I can tell by how happy you are. Thomas had doubts. Listen, if you've ever been around church in your life, you're going to have doubts. You're going to have questions. And the devil wants you to think that you're the first one to think this up. He loves to isolate people. He loves to make you think, well, nobody's ever answered this, so I guess I'm God. <laughs> don't be an idiot. Sorry, sorry. Don't, don't be so foolish as to think because you haven't found the answer to your particular question that there is no answer in the universe. I thought the universe was infinite and continually expanding. You know, there's a, there's a big push for people to believe that there are aliens out there. What if there are? What if the aliens have the answer to your question? Or do you have the entire universe un understood and systematized in your brain? You see, we're not as smart as we think we are, are we? We've got to humble ourselves at some point and say, God, I don't know, man. I don't know. This seems like a lot. But I'm willing to trust you. You see, the Bible makes certain claims for itself that must be accepted if you're going to have a relationship with God. And I heard someone say once, if you'll just accept the Bible as it is, for what it says, and just keep trusting it until it's proven wrong, then you can find God. 
You see, what you want to, God's brought you here maybe to say, well, yeah, you know, there's nothing you can say is going to touch me. Maybe not. Maybe not. But is there anything that God could say that would test, that would touch you? Because if that's the case, you'd say, yeah, God could. Then open your heart to him. Say, God, I don't know. I got questions. I got big questions. Nobody's ever, no pastor has ever preached and answered this question. No, no, no book I've ever read, no blog has ever actually addressed this issue. There ain't nobody out there that knows this one thing. I'll tell you this, God knows it. God knows the answer to your question. But if you're going to approach him, you're going to have to come humbly. You're going to have to say, God, I don't know. God will present you with a choice. That's what he did with Thomas. He came to Thomas. He said, Thomas, you want to try it out? You want to believe me? Go ahead. Put, put, your, put your finger right in there. Sorry, right in that hole. That's where the, where the uh, nail went. Go ahead and put your, put your finger right in there. You feel that, Thomas? Hey, put your hand right in here. Just go ahead and put your hand right inside my body. That's a supernatural body, by the way. You can put your hand inside of him and he's not bleeding out. He said, put it inside. Try it out. Why? He said, because I'm not afraid of your questions. I'm looking for your faith. Be not faithless, but believing. We have here the answer. In verse 28, Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. Life. He said, I came to, br- I came to bring you life. How do I get this spiritual life, this eternal life? Here's how you get it. Believing. Believing. We have here a written document where God bound himself with his own word to provide everlasting life for anyone who would believe on him. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Eternal life is personally granted to anyone who believes that Jesus Christ died for their sins, was buried, and came back from the grave. If you believe that, you can have eternal life. By the way, if you're going to get eternal life, you're going to have to get it from Jesus. Because he's the only one that proved that he has eternal life. He came back from the dead. He's the only one who can impart the absolute righteousness that's necessary. The halls of academia, University of Toledo, other places of higher learning, they cannot tell you how to have eternal life. They won't even pretend to tell you that. Uh, NASA, NASA's out spending billions of dollars looking for the source of life. They're looking for the origin of all of this. We're trying to get to Mars. You don't have to leave earth and search through deep space for the origin of life. The origin of life came to earth for you. He came down here. You don't have to go looking for him. He's looking for you. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Even to them that believe on his name. Receive, receive. 
receive. He's offering you life. What do you have to do? You receive it. It's a gift. Heaven is either earned or it's a gift. It can't be both. Religion tells you, we well, can work hard enough. You got to try again. I mean, it's one thing to believe in Jesus and all, but you better live it. Well, if you're going to live it, then it's not a gift, is it? He said, as many as received him, received him, not as many as who imitated him, not as many as who tried to live like him. No, as many as received him. I can tell you this morning that I have eternal life. That's not, that's, that's not self-confidence. That's not boasting. That's not arrogance. Why? He said it. I believe it. That's how I know I'm going to heaven. Because he said, I'll give it to you if you believe. And when I was 12 years of age, after having been in church all of my life, I realized one night, I've never actually put my faith in Jesus Christ, what he did on the cross, and what he did in rising from the dead. I've never believed that for me. I believe that for all of us. Like, we all believe that, right? But I didn't realize that he died on the cross for me personally. That it was my sins that nailed him there. And it was that night when I was 12 years of age, when I put my faith in him. What did that mean? I received what he did for me. I said, Jesus, if you're offering, I'm taking. And I can tell you right now, I know I'm going to heaven. Not because of anything I've done. Hello, it's not because of me. It was because of me he had to die. Why would I think I could add anything to what he did? It was my sin that put him on the cross. It was his holiness that brought him out of the ground. And he said, if you'll accept what I did for you and stop trying to earn it. Stop trying to be smarter. Stop trying to be more righteous. Stop trying to be better than your neighbors. Stop looking down on all the religious people. Stop looking around and trying to figure out how you're going to. No, stop and receive me. I did it. I did enough. I did it all. And I received it. And you can receive it. What do you receive? You got to believe that Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection is your only way of coming to God. That's it. You have to renounce anything that you've ever depended on to make you a good person. Your resume, your, 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 your career, the way you've treated your family, the good things that you've done, you've got to throw them all in the trash. See, that's, that is why it's so hard for people to come to Jesus. Because they're not all bad people. And that's why people say religion is a crutch for the worthless. Because it's only people who realize that they are worthless who would turn and say, God, I need you. I must have you or I will go to hell. And I'm asking you this morning, would you, would you at least admit that you're not as good as Jesus? You might be really great. You might be better than your, your, your spouse who claims to be a Christian. Okay? But are you better than Jesus? Because if you're not better than Jesus, then you're fooling yourself. Jesus was sinless, and he said, the only way to get to God is through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. I've got the keys of, de of, he uh, of death and of hell, and I've got the keys of heaven too. You want to get in here? You're going to come through me. And imagine the gall of saying, well, I came up hard. I was raised hard. I know how to handle myself in the world. 
or I've got my own way of looking at things. Do you have a heaven? Have you ever created a universe? Have you ever died on the cross for the sins of mankind? Maybe you ought to take it down a notch and humble yourself and say, God, I need you. God, I'm not saying that. Okay, I've tried. I've tried. I will say that. But there's something in me that it's not enough. And I just can't stand the thought of some other Christian gloating over in the corner going. <laughs> can, I, can I just remind you that all of us came at one point to the cross of Christ and say we're unworthy. We don't have anything to bring. There ain't no Christian here this morning that, 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 that is saved, that is a child of God, who, who thinks for one second that they had anything to do with their salvation. We all come penniless, barefoot, naked, poor, destitute to the cross of Christ, and we receive righteousness, a robe, and shoes on our feet. He gives us all what we could never afford. And I give unto them eternal life. I give unto them eternal. (laughs) People don't give you something for nothing. But Jesus does. He said, I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. So I ask you this. The death, the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ is available for you. If you will fall at his feet and trust him as your savior, he will give you everlasting life. Spiritual life is something you either have or you don't have. If Jesus said, I give it to you, then it must be that there was a time when you didn't have it. If you're going to take it, then you better get with it. Take that eternal life. One final question. When did you receive eternal life from Jesus Christ? Do you remember that day? If you don't remember that day, May I suggest this day that you receive from him that gift of eternal life. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me this morning?